there was a time when the world was so young, there had not yet been a sunrise. But even then, there was my brother, my captain, my podcast. Elves have their forests to protect, dwarves their mines, men their fields of grain. But we podcasters have the rings of power to talk about. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bob. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is The Great Wave. Episode 4 of Amazon's Lord of the Rings television show, The Rings of Power. But first, our spoiler warning. We will be spoiling everything that has aired thus far from The Rings of Power, and we will be discussing all published Lord of the Rings materials as they may come up, be they Peter Jackson's films or Tolkien's other entries in The Legendarium. However, we will save speculation based on prior knowledge for the end in a special spoiler section after a musical break if you want to remain curious about what comes next. And just a reminder, please send us emails at mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com, and we can interact with you as we go through this series. So given who I am as a person, this is going to sound like a very loaded question, uh, but I promise you it isn't. Um, so the question is, um, we are now at the halfway point of this season, of season one of Amazon Prime's Rings of Whatever. Uh, does it feel like we're at the halfway point of the first season of this massive show? For me, no. Like, very firmly, no. <laughs> um, I, I can go back and forth. I feel like some plot lines feel like they have a little bit more going on than others. Like, I feel like the Arondir and the Southlands plot is a little further along. But I feel like this is the first time I felt like the Numenor stuff is going somewhere other than telling me who people are and why they are the way they are, mm-hmm. even though they aren't the people that they're supposedly from <laughs> Tolkien's works. Um, but, like... I'm trying to like, I'm trying not to think about it in terms of Game of Thrones stuff, but like in a 10 episode season, usually like episode four is like something big happens. Like Danny burns down Astapor or Melisandre gives birth to a shadow baby. Like episode four (laughs) is a rock. It is absolutely um, where like, oh shit, that's absolutely where the ocean happens. And those did 10 episode seasons. This is eight. So it's a slightly little pacing. But I think that's even more damning that we're halfway through. And I just feel like some plots are just getting going. And I'm not even sure I would say the Harfoot plot is actually going anywhere right now. Um, It was still kind of, I know it's going to be a Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, kind of like a fun little farce off to the side. But even that still feels like it's very much in a prologue or very beginning of a first act um, stage of the storytelling. And I mean, in the sense of one season of television, granted, there's going to be Four more of these <laughs> that we have to cover. But um, I feel like it's just not, it does not feel halfway through because I feel like more of the plot should be in motion. But there's still just a lot of like, I'm not sure where these are going. Or I only know where these are going because I've seen Peter Jackson's films and read Tolkien's books. So I know that, oh, well, the dwarf plot's going to eventually lead to the Balrog. Yeah. Or this will eventually lead to the Sealdor and the Last Alliance, yada, yada. But none of it feels like it was really cooking. Like, I started to get a little bit excited at the end of this episode when Galadriel actually seems to be starting her journey. (laughs) Um, I know she's been, like, traveling all over the place, but it feels like it's been her being an obstinate, like, person. I need to do this thing and people telling her no, and it hasn't done much for me. But now that she's actually going to Middle-earth, I feel like, ah, we're doing something. Um, it's, uh, It's like in The Phantom Menace when they go back to Naboo. It feels like the plot's actually starting to, like, do something. Yeah. 
Um, how, how about you? Yeah, no, I mean, I think like your comparison to Game of Thrones is actually really apt. Like not least because the whole reason the show exists is because Jeff Bezos literally said, I want my Game of Thrones and then sent out the nine writers to go get him his Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, but also because I think like in that like awareness that this show seems to have of the like nearness of Game of Thrones, I think they've done this weird thing where like they've thrown out all of the parts of Game of Thrones, the TV show that worked when they're trying to throw out like any sort of resemblance to Game of Thrones. So like Game of Thrones, at least the like first couple seasons and like are structurally incredibly sound TV shows. Like they use the like season and episode format of TV incredibly effectively. And like you're saying, by the midpoint of the season, like something big has happened. And there's also like a very clear thrust for what the season is doing and where it is going. Um, And they seem to have like kind of in their desire to be like, we're never going to have our red wedding moment, um, have kind of thrown out the really strong parts of Game of Thrones, um, which is like successful, like pacing and like a narrative structure. And have instead been like, we're just going to do this at our own pace. And it, it is really slow. Um, and I think one of the other things that I find kind of funny, and again, this is because who I am as a person, which is a deeply awful human being, but like um, it, 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 this, this TV show specifically embodies a lot of what I would call like the unjust criticisms of Tolkien. Um, Cause a lot of people, you know, there's this meme that like, Oh, Tolkien writes so much and um, you know, it, it uses a lot of fluffy words and doesn't really say a lot. Um, but you know, He's an incredibly efficient writer. And The Lord of the Rings itself is only like 1,300 pages across three books, which is still less than like three of the Harry Potter books. Um, And there's an entire world built up in The Lord of the Rings that like you don't get in your average 1,300 pages of, of most fiction. Like he's incredibly efficient. He's got a really good sense of like pacing. Uh, and and a really good sense of how to construct a narrative. Um, and this show doesn't have that. Like, it doesn't have a good sense of pacing. It definitely doesn't, it either doesn't know or is not willing to tell us what it's planning to do with this show, which is why we're halfway through season one and, like, we're only just now realizing that there are, like, actually things that these characters can do beyond be kind of, like, boring, like, cardboard cutouts of themselves. Um, and I think it's such a shame because like if Jeff Bezos had wanted his Amazon or his Game of Thrones, rather, I would have hoped that they would have taken the like incredibly successful parts of Game of Thrones <laughs> instead of just like chucking everything out and also chucking out the Tolkien success and giving us whatever this like thin gruel is. Mm-hmm. So the thing when you're like making this kind of ensemble and story that's spread out over multiple settings and different characters is that at some point you expect them all these plot threads to kind of lock into place at one time. It's like, oh, Arya Stark is with Tywin Lannister now at Harrenhal. Like three different plot threads like created that situation or something. Yeah. And usually there, there's usually a guiding light. So you can see, oh, down the road, this is where I see stuff interacting. Like right now you can kind of see where Galadriel will probably intersect with the Aaron Deer stuff. Mm-hmm. But it just, it doesn't feel these things are paced in a way that they feel in sync so it feels very disjointed and that's why i still feel like it's a collection of plots where half of them i'm like kind of into some of them one or two i might be really into and then there's a couple that just weren't working for me yeah um and numenor broadly was not working for me i kind of got into it a little bit this episode near the end but it just like feels like it's dragging so far behind especially when it feels like the Aaron Deer stuff is moving into like act two of whatever it's trying to do. Yeah. Um, so it just, it's hard to see what that vision is. Maybe at the end of the season, it'll be like, Oh, it all came together. But 
right now it's a little too disparate and not coherent enough yeah. um, that I, I can't really get a feel for where it's going, which it's kind of silly for a prequel when I know where everything ends up. Right. But I actually don't. Yeah. Like, yeah. So sorry. Yes. I do think that like it is silly. I agree with you on that. Sorry. I was thinking you were saying that you thinking that was silly, but no. Um, and I think one of the things that like it is a bit strange to me is like um, they they had this opportunity before them. Right. They, they basically got given five seasons of the show. Um, right off the bat without having actually produced anything. And I, to be honest, like, even if I take away my, like, sort of unbridled uh, contempt for the show and step aside, I, like, I am willing to bet quite a bit that, like, Amazon is probably regretting having signed on for five seasons and spinoffs at this point, because this is just not having the cultural resonance of Game of Thrones at all. I don't think it's really having any cultural resonance at all. But that aside, um, you know, they had these five seasons off the bat and, and you know, I think what they could have done is thought a little bit more carefully about like how to have used those five seasons that they were already given to their best advantage. And if that meant season one is the Gladiel season, season two is the Auron season, season three is the Harfoots, season four is the, I don't know who else the other fucking people are, Numenor, and then season five is like it all comes together then I think that would have been a really creative and kind of interesting way of handling it. But instead, we're just kind of getting this wishy-washy, like, I don't know, it's just a mess. And, like, one of my kind of things that is driving me nuts with this show um, is that, like, they don't let the plots that they're writing speak for themselves. They instead cut conversations off halfway through. And, like, I was getting a count going, and then I got so distracted by some an insane bit of editing that I lost count. But, like, we had, like, five different conversations um, over the past three episodes that have just been like cut off midway through for no reason other than they don't trust that like the last sentence in that conversation will be like interesting enough to build tension on its own. So they're like, you're not going to get the resolution of this, this conversation. We're just going to jump to the next scene. And the actual resolution of the conversation, whenever we've seen it has actually been quite mundane, but they're using these like dialogue cuts in lieu of actually writing anything that is like fully entertaining. And I'm, I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, please just trust your audience and please have some confidence in your writing, like to do what you are intending to do without kind of needing to lean on like cheap, like second grade creative writing cliffhangers. No, I totally see that. Especially when you know what half the things they're like cutting off (laughs) are meant to be anyways. Um, it's, it's not actually adding much where, and I'm sorry, feel free to cut me off if you need to, but House of the Dragon is using a similar technique, but in a very smart way where they are like purposely holding back a truth that we don't know either from the show or the book readers who have read Fire and Blood. So it just creates an ambiguity and it actually furthers some of the characters and like what's going on with them. When, say, we don't know, I don't want to get into spoilers here on House of the Dragon. I have a whole other podcast for that. But it's like there's a way to cut away before you, like, say the last line of a thing and make it actually meaningful. Why you hide that line has to have a point other than, oh, well, everyone knows what this is about. So we're just going to move to the next thing, which seems to be especially a lot of the dwarf stuff. It just feels like they're cutting away from stuff that they know the audience probably knows already. Yeah. Um, so I'd rather just hear these characters talk about that stuff more in depth rather than try to be like, oh, we're talking around a thing that everyone knows about. It just, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I really don't know what to describe it, but it isn't that effective yeah. for me. I, I think the, the other thing, right, is that like the whenever they're doing these cuts, it tends to be cuts based around points at which they think that people will speculate based off of the existent lore. 
Um, and I find it really frustrating because they're obviously baiting this. They're obviously wanting people to go away and talk about it and be like, well, in this book, it says this. And in this book, it says this. And it could be X, Y and Z things. But like um, and actually, this is something I think I said when in our very first preview for the show where like I think the worst thing I said then that, I, you know, I thought that the worst thing the show could possibly do would be to make me feel like a jackass for knowing or caring about Lord of the Rings. Um, and I think like this show has very successfully made me just feel like the biggest asshole on planet Earth for like knowing about the books or caring about them or having any sort of interest beyond like Wikipedia, like names and dates. Um, and I think like I find it given that like they have basically taken this incredibly lackadaisical approach to canon, which is fine. They're allowed to do that. Um like the shadow of Mordor, shadow of war approach is valid. Um, like I wish they ha would stop baiting the canon discussion because like all it does is like they'll be like oh we're gonna cut this here because we want you all to go off and talk about like things that are in the Silmarillion or things that are in the unfinished tales and then when they finally give the resolution to these things the resolution is invariably fuck you for reading it um and like how dare you expect that like we would treat this seriously and and I just like it, it is just a nightmare kind of scenario for me because like I want I want to like this thing because it is Lord of the Rings and because it is Numenor, which I love to see. Um, but I'm just constantly in this position of feeling like, God, I'm just such a cunt for caring. And I don't really think a TV show <laughs> should be doing that. And I also don't think that like a TV show that's obviously trying to bait conversation should also have this kind of inbuilt um, aggression towards that conversation as well. And it just takes away the kind of joy of like kind of communal watching of TV just from this kind of weird structure, not weird, but like lazy structural choice that they've made in, in, you know, writing and editing the show. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, one of our friends, Wilf in the discord, she mentioned that it just kind of feels like we're hanging out in middle earth and everything else is divorced from Tolkien. Yeah. And that's like the sum total of what this show kind of is. Yeah. Um, and it can still be entertaining on those grounds, but it's not like the best adaptation or a great adaptation of kind of what Tolkien was doing. Yeah. And, and uh, I guess it's kind of for me is like, um, cause I, cause I think that is true. I think that is like an accurate assessment of what the show is. But like, for me, I have the Lord of the Rings online. So if I want to go hang out in middle earth, like I can go park up and fish in the Shire and listen to like people literally play their instruments in game. And that will like, that will successfully do that. And there were plenty of stories in there that like um, kind of fill that gap of like wanting to hang out, but not really wanting to deal with like Aragorn and co or the like ridiculous elves and co. Um, and so the whole like raison d'etre of this show is just not there for me. And I'm like, it sucks because I do want to, I do like Lord of the Rings, believe it or not. And I do actually like really want to like talk about it. And I want more people to like have this show be the, the, the moment for them that the movies were for so many people, this like gateway, but like based on the kind of like reactions of, you know, you know, I work in the entertainment industry, right. And I, ha I was having a conversation about TV shows because there are so many TV shows that are on right now. And I was having a conversation with one of my coworkers about it. And they had no idea that the show existed. <laughs> and I was like, that to me is the thing. Like we are literally in a company that like does social media and does like brand work for these major TV companies. And if people I work with don't know that the show exists, nobody does. And that sucks because I really want people to get into this and love it, like not love it as much as I do. They don't have to do that, but like get as much joy and like happiness out of it that I do. And I think the show is just like in so many ways, not really conducive to that. And it feels like such like a, an unforced error. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's fair. Um, why don't we just uh, get into the episode um, and we'll 
kind of talk it through <laughs> as we go through the various plot points, if that works for you. Giddy up. Uh, so we'll start with Numenor, uh, which opens with a little bit of a misdirect. Uh, Muriel is blessing babies, um, which I guess is a thing they do. Maybe I don't really know. Oh, God. Uh, and then uh, all of a sudden, like flower petals or tree petals start like flowing in through the window. She turns around and then a giant wave, the great wave, um, sinks Numenor or at least destroys all the buildings. Um, I don't really have much to say, although I guess this is obviously setting up the sinking of Numenor, which we won't discuss too much in the non-spoiler section. But I think everyone, if you've been paying attention to the show or any of the press release or the advanced materials, um, Numenor as Atlantis is very kind of firmly established. Yeah, Um yeah. Um so so I can't remember if we've in our normal coverage of the Peter Jackson films if we've done this bit yet but um waves and dreams like dreams of waves are uh, an incredibly important motif in Tolkien's writing and like I should stop and say here I know this has no real relationship to Tolkien's canon. I know I'm not trying to be a stickler for the lore. I'm just pointing out the fact that I think this is interesting that that the the wave motif is such an important motif in Tolkien's lore. Um Faramir, of course, has the the dream, uh the dream wave, the wave dream. Uh and then um, <laughs> I was like, what is happening here? Uh and then there are a whole bunch of other characters, well two other characters in the Silmarillion that also have uh dreams of waves. Um and it is usually a a a sort of premonition um not just of doom but of obligation and duty to uh either prolong or stop that doom. Um and it's interesting here because I think they can't really act on that motif um, by having Muriel see it now, especially with the way that they've done this. Right. Because like, I, I think there's basically three ways that this dream thing works out. Right. So either one, um, it, this is predestination and Muriel's um, uh, like premonition here comes true, in which case there's an element of predestination to middle earth that really isn't there uh, Two, um it doesn't come true, and I don't really want to talk about that because I just think that's absurd. Uh, or three, like, Muriel's premonition um, happens, but she doesn't really do anything to stop it and doesn't really say anything about it. In which case, I think this is a huge narrative mistake um, because Tarmiriel's story and the tragedy of her story is that she doesn't actually see what's happening until it's too late. Like, she is literally... Uh, she she is a, a member of the Numenorean faithful, and she is forced in by by a rape into this marriage that she doesn't want to have. She's had her power taken from her, and and in this moment of realization, literally as the apocalypse is dawning on them, um, she climbs up Mount Altarma, the holy mountain, which does get a name check in this, um, and she watches the wave um, crash down, and and so it is like the you know her moment of realization um, at the tragedy that is unfolding is literally like a tidal wave crashing down on her. Like, literally, not even figuratively, literally a tidal wave crashing down on her. And, and that's the tragedy of it, right? And that's the value of the Atlantis story. Um, and and I think this is kind of tying into a lot of my problem with this show, which is that they're just kind of trying to shove as much as possible in people's faces because I don't think they really trust their audience to, like, connect A to B or to have the, like, like either connect A to B narratively or to have the emotional connect of A to B. Like, I think they've kind of force this in at the start because they think that if they wait until um, like wait for Muriel to realize what's happening um, until the very last moment, their audience won't get that that's tragic. And I think that's just like a weird level of like creator kind of mistrust in their audience that I'm like, like Tolkien wouldn't have done this, but like 
no one else really would have done this as well. Like, I think part of like creating art that is meant to be like consumed popularly, like TV is having like a, a degree of faith and not really thinking that you are smarter than your audience. And this kind of plot reveal specifically kind of reeks to me of like, we don't really trust the people. We kind of think the people who are watching this are all like morons. So trying, trying to like square the round peg of this episode it kind of felt like for me that Muriel was having this vision and thought it had something to do with Galadriel coming there. And then with the ending of the episode and the flower petals starting to fall when they send Galadriel away, um, that read to me as her kind of misinterpreting her vision. Right. Um, she, she thought Galadriel was the herald of woe, but actually sending her off might have been actually what dooms her. Um, is there any way that can come around and hit the points that you're trying to say that or the points that uh, Tolkien was trying to make with any of this? Um, I mean, yes. Like, yeah, I think it is. And I think that's like probably a very good interpretation of it. I think the problem is um, it the, the, the problem is it implies a level of agency. Like it implies that Muriel has a level of agency in the tragedy that she doesn't have. Um, and I think like this, this kind of ends up being one of these things where like um, it, Tolkien's sexism um, ends up being uh, like manifesting itself as a remarkably good um, condemnation of patriarchy. And like this is incredibly true with Aeon's story. And this is true here where like um, in his sort of willingness or or I should say unwillingness to like um, foist a scepter into the hand of any sort of woman ruling queen who comes along um, because of his own sort of preconceived notions about about women and womanhood. Um, what he ends up actually doing is showing just how powerless women are in the face of patriarchy. Because like, right, because like allegedly in Numenor, women aristocrats are equal in every way to to men. That is the that is the world that, that Tolkien set up. Um, and so Tar Mariel's story serves to say, well, actually, that isn't true because her marriage was forced upon her against her will. And because she was usurped, um, it actually shows that like she may have had power and women in Numenor may have had power, but really they didn't have much in the face of patriarchy and, and they didn't have any agency. And, and Muriel's story, by virtue of her not having any control over it, shows that, as is true for, I would say, a lot of women, like they're, they're, you are constantly feeling like you are drowning in patriarchy and in a, in a, a, a tidal wave sent by God that you are not really to blame for, uh, at blame uh, for. And, and I think like that question of agency, like could Muriel have prevented this? And is the wave her fault through either like an error that that she couldn't have avoided because it was like a bad interpretation or an error that she could have avoided? Giving her that agency takes away the tragedy of it and takes away that really valuable critique of patriarchy that is there. Um, so like maybe that's just me being like unnecessarily like anal retentive about the like canon. But like, yes, it could get there. That interpretation could get there. But also, no, it can't. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh Elsewhere in Numenor, we see Ferrazon or Ferrazon just kind of talking to the merchants and kind of walking around before some random dude who I, I don't know who the random young guy is who's been following him oh, around yeah. here. Um, um, but anyway, oh, go ahead. Do you know who this is? <laughs> yeah. So this is a guy named Kemen. Uh, and I uh, about howled laughing uh, when I saw his name. So his name is spelled K-E-M-E-N. Um, and it's uh, Quenya word meaning earth. <laughs> so this dude is walking around and his name is just straight up earth. 
Um, so he's oh, like a right. he's either the direct son of like directly, literally the son of uh, Farazone, uh show invented, uh, or he is like kind of his protege. Um, but he is someone who has a relationship to Farazone and is named Earth. <laughs> okay, very fun. Um, I had to read a quick recap uh, before we got on air just to make sure I didn't miss any of the plot beats. And who, whatever I was reading, I think it was over at CNET, they just started calling him Kevin, which he, <laughs> he looks like a Kevin. So um, there was, um, sorry to do another Thrones comparison, but Farazone says something about... Um, you know, there are small matters of statecraft that he must also attend to, uh, which reminds me of a Varys line from season one or the first book, that we are the lords of small matters, referring to the people on the small council, um, talking about the day-to-day minute like business of the capital and the crown. So it just kind of stuck out because it was very similar phrasing. Yeah. Uh, so what they're pushing here is that there seems to be anti-elf sentiment in Numenor. Good. um, And it's pretty much uh, driven by the people we saw accosting Halbrand in the last episode. Um, And then Farazone kind of shows up um, and says, one elf will not threaten us. Um, He has a bunch of serving wenches ready to go who just come out with a bunch of booze, which, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I I guess if you're that powerful, you probably have serving wenches, so I guess that tracks. But... um, I kind of want to ask you about this stuff because I don't I don't know how much of this tracks like anti-elf sentiment the way that the way that they're phrasing it here. It's almost like that crazy racist who stands at the street corner and just starts yelling on his little crate, um, which is not exactly how I would picture anti-elf sentiment manifesting, whether in Numenor or Middle Earth. Yeah. can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So so I think there's kind of two dimensions to this. Like like one, I will say up front, there is no actual evidence uh, in the books of anti-elf racism. Like this is a direct pull from The Witcher. This is something that like The Witcher does. Uh, and this is where they are getting it from. Um, I do not think that they have thought deeply enough about what the fuck is going on in the books to be like, oh, yeah. And this would definitely spur like anti-elf racism. Uh, no, they've seen it in Netflix's The Witcher and gone with it. Um, but, um, you know, I, like I would say personally, I, I think there is possibly a good argument to make for anti-elf sentiment. Um, I would not have treated it as clumsily as they have. Um, and I think the thing that like, this was kind of the moment where like, I could feel my brain literally breaking. And I was like, I could no longer care about the show. I can no longer feel emotionally invested in the show because what the show is doing is like, it is the, it is part of the propaganda wing of like Amazon that, that has always been true. We've always known that because it's Amazon studios, but like what the show is saying is like, um, these people who think, so like the way, the way that they frame the elves is important, right? Because they basically say the guy who's you know, bitching in public about the elves says, um, they can live forever. They can, they don't age, uh, and they can work longer hours than us. So effectively what he's saying is the elves are bad because they'll take our jobs because they can work longer hours than us and they never retire. And, and he's being racist against them. And because he's being racist against them on those lines, um, we're meant to be like, oh, well, that's fucked up that you would be racist against them for working that hard and doing, you know, living that long and never retiring. Um, And it's so kind of laughably like this is what like Amazon is pushing out in its anti-union propaganda literally right now. Um, Because there's like a wildcat strike. There's a wildcat strike at an Amazon fulfillment uh, center, distribution center here in Britain, uh, in England, actually, uh, a couple weeks ago. And literally what they they pushed out as part of their PR team, what or uh, part of their kind of PR push uh, in light of the wildcat strike was like, 
all of these people who are supporting this, who are saying that like we're bad uh, employers are just like upset that we would have workers who are incredibly dedicated and don't feel the need to take breaks and don't feel the need to like work fewer than eight hours. And so to see that like line for line in this, I was like, okay, I'm done. I can't care about this anymore. Um, but anyways, so to circle back to that, no, uh, there is there is not really any sort of basis for uh, canonical elf racism in Lord of the Rings. It is arguable. I would even say if they had done it right, I would have agreed with it because uh, the elves fucking suck. Um, but what they've ended up doing is by like having it kind of be an, a popular upswell of anti-elf sentiment. Um, they seem to be setting it up as like, you know, the kind of crazed and dangerous, but also like incredibly sort of volatile masses um, are the ones that need to be controlled by the aristocracy rather than as it's set up or implied in the Silmarillion and in the Lord of the Rings appendices, where it's the uh, aristocracy who are meant to be the moral, spiritual and political stewards of the people have failed the people. It's kind of a bit like the people are failing the aristocrats. Um, so yes, long-winded answer to that one. I was going to say, this reminded me of, again, Game of Thrones, but in this case, I'm going to dunk on Game of Thrones. <laughs> so they're both bad in this case. Um, in season five, um, Sir Loras, who is the gay knight from House Tyrell, nice. um, he basically gets uh, tortured and imprisoned because he's gay. Oh. Um, and then later in season seven, <laughs> yeah, not nice. Um, <laughs> so when uh, Daenerys um, invades with the Dothraki, um, there's all sorts of discourse in King's Landing that that is basically we can't have these foreigners here. Um, and what it felt like in both those cases, which are not really directly from the book, is that they were taking like 2015 prejudices in America or the Western world yeah. and putting them in here as opposed to because like, you know, um, gay men in Westeros are not necessarily accepted or whatever. But they like remain closeted for the most part, but it's kind of an open secret. But there's no like institutional anti-homosexual agenda yeah. <laughs> anywhere in the story. Yeah. So just for like narrative shortcuts, they're asking the audience to bring in some of our yeah. like uh, not our bigotry, but our baggage, knowing how bigotry works in our real world yeah. and trying to put it in here, which m could be effective, maybe. But it's basically doing that so that it doesn't have to do the work of actually building these kind of tensions around yes. race or uh, sexuality. It's just like, oh, you know how people treat gay people. Oh, you know how people treat people of color. Yes. Just pretend that's what's happening here. And that's what I think didn't really sit well with me in this right. early half of the episode. Yes, exactly. And I think this is key, right? Because they've done this. I think they've also kind of screwed themselves over in other ways, which is that like, I, you know, I think this whole kind of wide eyed shock and awe at like that the kind of. Ca not the cast, the, the creative team um, have expressed it like, oh, the Nazis who really love Lord of the Rings are behaving like Nazis about our show, which is based off of Lord of the Rings. Like, who could have guessed that this would have happened? Like, I think this kind of wide-eyed bullshit that they're doing is genuinely bullshit. Like, I think they knew that when they were going to do some of these plots, like when they were going to make the only Black elf that they bothered to cast go in and lead a slave uprising. They knew exactly what they were doing with that. Like they they were not like these liberals who don't see color. Um, they knew what they were doing and they knew exactly what they would be playing up with that. And like here they're doing it again and they're doing it here in like a very cognizant way. But I think what they're trying to do is like take credit for things that they think look progressive without actually having to like do any of the like uncomfortable work of like thinking in a way that is genuinely 
liberated. Now, I would not ask to graduates of McLean fucking high school uh, to think in a liberated way, but like, <laughs> <laughs> spoilers, docs in the fucking uh, creative team, whatever. Um, but like, you know, they want this credit. They want these like accolades, but they don't actually want to do like the really uncomfortable work of thinking about what like a world that is genuinely not operate, like doesn't operate on a white supremacist worldview would look like so they're like we'll bring in the white supremacy when it's convenient for us and when it's not convenient for us we'll just pretend it ain't there which is just insane yeah no i i agree with all that I th- i'm glad we're on the same page with that uh we'll zoom in on galadriel now as she kind of takes the reins of the numenor plot uh for the rest of the episode um you have a quote here from fellowship of the ring <laughs> which i can't remember the context for so i'll just let you go <laughs> Um, so she's got, uh, Galadriel's got a bit, I can't remember what it is. It's either when she's in the cage or out of the cage or in the cage or out of the cage where she's trying to say something to someone. This is how little of this episode has stuck with me, but she's delivering this like, oh, it's the Tempest line. It's the ridiculous line about there being a Tempest inside her. She's like, there is a Tempest in me, but she delivers it exactly like Ian McKellen delivers Bilbo Baggins. I am not trying to rob you. She does it exactly like that. And I had to pause because I was cracking up because it is so spot on. Like it's an almost perfect impression of Gandalf. And like, I think the acting choice was brilliant because it definitely does lend that air of like, she is bigger than the, like, not like physically, but she is like spiritually and like personality wise bigger than the room she is in. Um, She can fuck you up and you have to listen to it. But, um, but just that it was just so close to the, the, the Gandalf line. I was like, ah, too funny. Okay, okay, I did flank that. I think in my notes I had written at this point that uh, God bless Morphid Clark. She yeah. really is doing as much as possible as she can with some of this stuff. Yep. So um, so what's happening in the scene is Galadriel is arguing with Muriel. Um, Elendil is just kind of there, I guess. I guess he's kind of like attached to the hip at Galadriel for the, for oh, the time being. Oh my being. God, wait, sorry. I have to get this out. I have to get this out because I'm going to go crazy. There's a bit where he he's like being asked something about himself and he says, Oh, only a petty lord or a minor lord. And I was like, that specifically, like, like I hope the screenwriters of this show, like for the next episode, for episode five, just knock on my door and fucking take me out with a predator drone instead of saying shit like that. Anyways, sorry, carry on. Uh they wouldn't have to knock on your door if they were That's using true. a predator, right. predator right. drone. It's a very polite predator drone. <laughs> they knock, it opens a door, and there's an Amazon drone just shooting you in the fucking head. Um, <laughs> And also possibly delivering some stuff to your partner. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, anyways, basically what uh, Galadriel is asking for is to have the men of Numenor join with Galadriel um, to help seat Halbrand into uh, whatever seat he has in the South and fight Sauron because that is where he's making his play. Um, and uh, I think Tarmiriel says... Numenor has other plans, which I didn't really pick up what those other plans would be. Yeah. Um, but all I can tell is that um, Elendil's kind of stepping in. Like, Galadriel, you're kind of pushing this a little too far. You're, you know, you're going to get thrown in jail. And then we smash cut to her being thrown in jail and Halbrand <sighs> laughing at her, which, good bit. I like that. That's fine. <laughs> um, but was there anything else you picked up from this conversation uh, between these two? No, I just think this is like uh, like a... I mean, I love a Twinkie, but this is very much a Twinkie of a dialogue bit. Uh, There's nothing in there. Um, If you deep fry it, though, it is good. Um, The thing that someone pointed out to me is that 
I'm, I'm such a like I'm such a credulous viewer sometimes like I like just watch things and they're on screen and I'm like well they're on screen so they must be authoritative but someone on Tumblr pointed out to me uh literally just before we hopped on to record this that like it's insane the thought of Galadriel Galadriel the lady of Lothlorien daughter of Finarfin like who is literally by three or four generations directly connected to the first elves who have ever lived she's getting thrown in prison <laughs> like like it's a fucking Pirates of the Caribbean like literally like she's Orlando Bloom in Pirates of the Caribbean like it is baffling to me um the degree to which they've just kind of like I don't know not pedestrianized but like they've just kind of made like kind of a gimmick out of all of these characters and at this point because I've had this like spiritual breakdown I'm like I don't care but someone did point it out to me and I was like that is a good point I should bring that up it is just weird all of it okay uh Galadra Will Turner something like that I don't know <laughs> love it um, Anyways, uh, eventually, uh, later in the episode, Farazone comes by with a bunch of guards and says, we're going to put you on a fucking boat. Um, but, you know, because reasons, she beats up everyone. Uh, and then Farazone basically lets her go because Halbrand says he knows where she's going, which kind of makes sense in the moment. But um, I'm not sure if he meant like he, she's going to go seek out the king or she means she's heading to Middle Earth and the Southlands. Um, because I don't know how to square it with the end of the episode where Muriel just grants her the ability to go. Yeah. Um, it feels kind of like an unused plot beat, but maybe I just didn't catch it. Um, I do like uh, where Farazan's about to draw his sword, but then decides not to just because already in House of the Dragon, twice I've heard the phrase, sheath your fucking steel <laughs> or something like that, or sheath your steel, you fucking twats. Nice. Um, so... It's just funny seeing him actually sheath his uh, um, um, It's also very reminiscent. I know because we're just having to do like Spirit Halloween Aragorn with Halbrand. It's very reminiscent of when uh, in uh, Peter Jackson, Two Towers, Theoden's getting ready to beat the shit out of Grima with Harrigrim and Aragorn's like... <laughs> Nah, not today, bro. We let the sexual assaulters go today. Um, and it had that, that same vibe. And I know that's what they're going for, but it's very funny uh, to see how close it is. So uh, while the people of Numenor, or I guess they're cops, I assume they have cops, <laughs> go searching for Galadriel everywhere. Um, she climbs the tower, I guess, where the king is, um, who is named Tar Palantir. Yeah. And he looks like he's sick or dying. Probably both. <laughs> usually, <laughs> They usually go hand in hand. Um, so, uh, what we learn here is that Muriel tells Galadriel, cause she's there as well, um, that she's hiding the kings to king status from the rest of the people. Mm. Apparently the king wanted to reforge alliances with the elves and possibly hunt out Sauron or any remnants of that enemy. But basically the people didn't want that. And the people basically placed Muriel in charge. This is actually what uh, happened to Queen Elizabeth II. That's why she's dead now. <laughs> Um, and that kind of transitioned us into the reveal of the Palantir, which I have a question. Is Tar Palantir named after Palant the Palantir or are Palantirs named after Tar Palantir? Um, the word Palantir got a lot of play in this episode. I didn't know if we were supposed to see a connection between the king named that and the actual seeing stone. Um, yeah. So I guess there's like a thematic connection. So like Palantir just means far seeing. Um, and it, it's like, pal like there's a name actually, pa Palandiriel, uh, she who sees far, Palandir. Uh, and um, it like the, the stones are not like, it, it, I don't think you can think of like the Palantir as like, you know, the stones as a name, as in like a very unique name. Like it is just a combination of words that means far saying. So it'd be like naming your, 
like a whole brand of cell phones, like far speaking. Um, and then if you had a kid that was also for some inexplicable reason named far speaking, they wouldn't have a relationship to the brand. But like, or apples and apples, Jesus Christ, I work in tech. How did I not get that one? Like <laughs> Apple, the brand doesn't actually have like a direct relationship to apples, the food other than one was like named for the other. So that's the relationship there. I literally don't think I could have explained this in a more confusing way. No, there's not actually a like direct relationship, but there also is because they're both Farsi. <laughs> uh, understood. Understood. <laughs> it just, it, it feels like you're meeting a guy named Tar Palantir and then you meet, you actually see a real Palantir. Yeah. Um, and it just feels like there should be a connection there, which kind of, I guess, I guess there isn't yeah. other than just the overlap of name. Yeah. Uh, Galadriel looks into the Palantir and she says, uh, she's used one or looked into one before. Yeah. Um, but when she touches it, I do kind of like the scene transition. Cause like the Palantir starts icing up and then the whole screen kind of ices up and then it cuts to flashback. Yeah. I'm just praising the transition by the way, <laughs> nothing else. Um, but that, uh, basically shows us Galadriel seeing the same exact thing that Mariel did, even possibly from the same room. Yeah. Um, cause I felt like it was the same archway and window that the waves come clash- crashing in again, the flower petals herald the crashing waves. Um, and that's that, um, it takes, uh, Galadriel aback um, and then they go into a conversation where um, I remember hearing only Numenor can bring its own downfall <laughs> um, which okay the only thing that can destroy the house of the dragon is itself <laughs> um, that one I cannot blame the show for because these shows were made in tandem or like cons- simultaneously so it's obviously not ripping off house of the dragon but yeah. it's just like geez I'm hearing the same refrain in two places and I like one better, but I'm not going to tell you which. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is actually, I, I hate this because I don't like this line. I think this line is dog shit and I think it's like badly used in the context of this story. But it is, unfortunately, it is drawing on something that like Tolkien loved himself, which is like the question of why is it Gollum and not Frodo that takes the ring into Mount Doom? Well, because evil bear, like evil breeds the seeds of his own destruction. And like the things that are bad always have the things that will destroy themselves within them. Um, so like obviously Numenor going bad has to be brought down by itself, but that's a level of introspection and self-awareness that the Numenorians are not meant to have right now. Like Numenor right now is meant to be like New York city, 1997, like, or Silicon Valley, 1997 in terms of like head shoved, so far up its own ass, it thinks it is living in simultaneously eternal darkness and eternal light. Like it is not meant to be a, a culture of self-aware people. It is meant to be a culture at the height of its like power, at the height of its wealth, like so rich and so successful, it can't even like handle itself. And so like a Numenorian or anybody in Numenor openly being like Numenor will bring itself down through this behavior is a little bit too much self-awareness. Um, so whatever, I don't care. I don't care anymore. I can't care. Whatever. Um, the other point that I did want to make though, is I think this is the last of the, uh, teaser trailer scenes that we haven't yet seen on screen. So I think after this one, we've covered everything from the trailers. Yeah. Including some of the sound clips, which will get uttered in other scenes and other plot threads that we'll kind of highlight as well. Um, the last bit we get in Numenor is the Isildur subplot. Um, we see him once again on a boat um, and he's kind of hearing the woman whispering in the distance, a sealed door again. Um, I don't think we have any better um, idea of what's going on with that. Uh, but basically, he's so 
looking to the horizon, his mind not where he is or what he's doing. Um, so like the ropes on the sails like come loose and uh, whoever's in charge of the sea guard basically says, you know, I've seen you do this a million times. You're clearly just, your head's not in the game right now. Um, so he dismisses not only a seal door, but also his buddies who were like on his group or team, however you want to call it. And um, his buddies are not thrilled with it. They kind of like, yell at him a little bit. One's like super depressed about it. Uh, one's about to throw up. Uh, I don't know if there's anything to say other than like near the end when they kind of settle, like Galadriel is going to be allowed to go back to Middle Earth with a force of Numenorians. Um, these men, including Isildur, were allowed to volunteer. So basically, they basically got out of their old job so they can get this new gig was basically how I saw this scene. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention real quick is we get mention of Isildur's dead mother. Yeah. Um, there is a strong through line in this episode of parents that we don't see. Um, a couple parents we do see, many of them dead. We will get mentioned later of Elrond's father. Um, we, I think we talked, I mean, we saw the king, Tarmiriel's father. That is her father, right? The king yeah. in the tower? Yeah. Um, so there is a lot of um, talk about parents and, of course, Adar, which we'll get to when we get to the Aaron Deer stuff. So um, at least... There's a through line, which, yeah. yay, that's <laughs> makes for coherent storytelling. Um, but is there anything you want to add about Isildur's dead mother? Uh, <laughs> no, but the other uh, non-existent family member um, who uh, I was actually quite pleased at this, they make an Aryan sound cool as shit because um, they're like, oh, well, you're getting all these like big ideas in your head about going to the like far west, just like an Aryan. Oh, an Aryan, that awful long haired hippie. And I'm sitting there like, yes, an Aryan, that awful long haired hippie. Give it to me. Like, yes, Gondor is like descended from the coolest motherfucker in town he's driving around he's doing like donuts of numenor in his like 1976 cadillac he looks cool as shit it's a pink cadillac like good give me this energy everything else who cares fair enough um so with galadriel leading a group of people including seemingly elendil and isildur back to middle earth um that'll kind of wrap up numenor plotline for this episode um, let's hop over into the Southlands, uh, where um, we the last episode ended with like the soft focus reveal of Adar, who we did get to reveal as Uncle Benjen, um, Uncle Benjen Stark. Of course, I mean, Joseph Malwe. He was in Game of Thrones and I don't know anything else he's done besides that. So um, what I will point out is the first thing that's supposed to stand out to us is that he is not an orc. Um, he looks pretty much like an elf who got like the Sandor Clegane burns. Like he just got a face burn and stuff, but otherwise he very much seems like an elf. Yeah. And I think this also continues a trend in this show so far of like only referencing bits of Tolkien's writing that were already present in Peter Jackson's films, which is like, whatever. Okay. Maybe Peter Jackson was just preternaturally talented at picking the only bits of information from 1300 plus pages of text uh, that is worth reading. Uh, but it is very funny that they reference that one bit with Christopher Lee and the weird fucked up Urukai being like, do you know how the orcs were made? Because, uh, yeah, he, predictably. But yes, uh, there's more on that later. <laughs> uh, so Deer in the kind of conversation that he has with uh, Adar, um, mentions he was born in Beleriand, and I think the 
Adar, I, I'm sorry if I call him Uncle Benjamin. <laughs> uh, I think he basically says he might have been born there too, or at the very least um, that he has seen Balerion, mm-hmm. which um, sunk, what, near the end of the first stage or at the end of the first stage? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll circle back to Balerion a little bit in our spoiler section, in the Tolkien Tolkien section. So um, we'll just move on from there. Um, there was one line um, I did like in the sequence where um, uh, Adar says some l- lies run so deep, even the rocks and roots believe them, um, which I think is just a good sense of the corrupting nature of the evil, the enemy that's set in this world and in the story. Um, some lies run so deep also is one of the trailer lines. So we got that knocked out. Mm. And then I think it does circle back with um, the stuff with Disa at the end, which we'll talk about a little bit later but how she's singing to the rocks. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of like the rocks and the roots are perceptive of the lies, the sounds, the songs that are happening around them, which I kind of like. Yeah. Um, Someone more cynical than me, and I am not more cynical than me, so I will not say this, but I will play devil's advocate very benevolently here. Uh, Might point out this is just a refashioning of uh, the All the Glitters is Not Gold poem with the line, deep roots are not touched by the frost, um, with a less symbolic turn on what the frost is. Uh, So there's that. Uh, The one thing that did crack me up, though, right? Um, And I I think this is probably just like an unfortunate coincidence and also uh, a sign of like maybe some good character acting. Uh, But this is preceded by a line that is like, you have been told many lies, but the way he delivers it in that line specifically mirrors exactly Ray Fiennes as Voldemort delivering, I'm pretty sure, that line precisely in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, either part one or part two. And it like got it into my head. And I spent all like the fucking hour and a half of my workday that was left going, God, where is that from? Where is that from? And then I Googled it and it is literally Ray Fiennes. So uh, Voldemort lives. <laughs> Yeah, very much sounds like something that would have been in Deathly Hallows Part 2 when he does his, like, Professor X talk to every human on the world through <laughs> telepathy kind of thing. Yes. So, um, so in the end, um, Aaron Deere during the scene was, like, picking up, like, a arrowhead or something on the ground that he was maybe going to stab Adar with. But Adar basically says, I'm going to let you go to warn the people of the tower. That's the elf tower that Aaron Deere was stationed at initially. But Bronwyn had led her people there after they found out the orcs were playing whack-a-mole under their village, uh, which serves as a transition to the Watchtower setting. And we basically see Bronwyn and her village do not have enough food um, to feed themselves. And this is where her son Theo suggests raiding the old man Waldrig's barn while the sun is out, you know, before the orcs can get to them. Um, Fine, plot stuff, it's all okay. There is mention of the Orodrin, or the Orodwin? I forget it because I was thinking it was the river. Is it a river or is it a place? Um, uh, Orodwin, uh, that is Mount Doom. Um, Orodwin is, uh, okay. yeah, is Mount Doom before it goes, well, before and after it goes Kaplawi. Okay, that's right. Um, Druin and Duin, I get those two mixed yeah, up. That stupid the, R. They are not easy to differentiate. Um, so we see Theo and his racist friend, whose name I cannot remember, uh, <laughs> go to the village where they're trying to just pick up whatever they can. Um, And I think uh, Theo finds like a bag of rice in one of the houses and he's like scooping that up when all of a sudden clouds kind of blot out the sun and his racist friend decides, fuck it, I'm out of here. So he like runs off with his cart of whatever grains he had uh, gathered in the time. Um, But Theo uh, looking around, there's an orc in there who tries to fight him. Theo has been carrying that like blood sword 
um, that half broken hilt or whatever. Um, he takes it out and apparently Theo knows how to use it now a little bit. Like he stabs himself with it. So like the blade becomes a blade. Um, yeah. So it like reappears or whatever, like it grows. It's kind of like Thundercats in that way, I guess. Um, and then uh, the orc is like, oh shit, you have the thing that we're looking for. Um, so even though Theo is able to give him the slip here in the moment, um, that orc raises the alarm and says, we need to find this kid because he has the hilt, which is very Metal Gear Solid-y. <laughs> um, if one of the guards finds you, they raise the alarm and they go to advanced search mode and start really looking for you. Um, apparently, Theo played Metal Gear as well because he does some good stealth sequencing here. Um, first, he hides in a well, um, ducks under the water a bit. Um, and then we cut to, back to the scene a bit later in the evening um, where he's basically pulls himself out of the well, ducks into the shrubbery, hides behind walls. Again, very, very Metal Gear Solid-y, which I liked the sequence, but the lighting was atrocious yeah. for this. It was just incredibly bad because most of it was completely in the dark. There was some good lighting once they actually like panned over to like the villages that are on or sorry, the houses that are on fire. Um, it provided a nice burning, like hazy backdrop, which was allowing Theo to be shown as a silhouette. It reminded me a little bit of 1917, the movie by Sam Mendes, which is a kind of forgettable movie, but was uh, the director of photography was Roger Deakins, who is a legend. Um, so that part kind of was like, OK, this is kind of cool. Uh, but Theo, you know, in his little stealth sequence, he gets ambushed by the orc that found him in the first place. I think his name was like Barth or something like that I saw. Um, and kudos to Theo, like during this whole thing, he's like holding on to the rice. Um, so it's like he did not forget the whole purpose of coming here was to get food. Yeah. Um, but just as about he's about to get gutted by Varth, uh, Aaron Deer shows up and saves the day. Again, I wish the lighting wasn't so bad because the visual language here was kind of solid where um, Varth the orc raised his sword um, and was about to swing down on Theo. Um, but Aaron Deer's sword kind of stabbed him like through the chest, very similar to how Sam like saved Frodo in Kirith Ungol, which I think is a very deliberate callback yet again. Um, but the way they shot it, it almost looked like that was the orc sword and it was coming down on yeah. Theo and it wasn't um, Aaron Deer's sword going through him. Again, I thought it was pretty cool, but the lighting was just not good enough to really pay off, especially when Sam, like sticking that guy like a pig in Kirith Ungol is one of the more memorable moments from that movie. Yeah. And there's some more good orc action, uh, orc action, elf <laughs> action, where they're running through the woods. Again, I wish the lighting was good because I kind of like the idea of Aaron Deer grabbing an arrow out of midair yeah. and firing it back. It's very much something Legolas from the films would do. Yeah. Um, and even the slow-mo, I didn't love it, but I could live with it here because I think of Legolas getting on the horse and it inexplicably going <laughs> into slow-mo for that. Um, again, I like this stuff. I just wish the lighting was better. I know they're really trying to emphasize the nighttime, but we've talked about so many nighttime scenes in the Lord of the Rings films and not one of them was hard to tell what was happening. Yeah, I agree. And, and I also think like the, 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 the point about the Legolas stuff and, um, in two towers, um, is actually very salient because like, these are the kinds of things that I like they're fun, but they are objectively ridiculous. These are the ridiculous things that you can get away with if everything else is really good. Um, like everything else about the Peter Jackson films is 100% baller. So it's much easier to forgive things that are like ridiculous, but loads of fun. Whereas with this, like everything is so 
mindlessly mediocre that it's hard for me to be like, oh, but that was fun because it isn't really fun. Like we are like 45 minutes into just a fucking trudge of a TV episode. And I'm like, this is just insulting at this point. If everything else was well done, if it was all well crafted, if I could actually see what was going on, then I'd be much like more content to just be like, it's dumb, but fun. But we're at the point where I'm like, it's dumb and I guess it could be fun, but I can't see it. So God only knows if it's fun. Fair enough. Uh, they eventually make it out of the forest, out of the tree line. Dawn has broken. Uh, Bronwyn is there waiting for uh, Aaron Deer and Theo, I guess. Um, and that basically wraps up that plot line. Um, we don't get too much with Bronwyn, and I don't love that she's just basically worrying mother for the entire <laughs> episode. But um, I do still think she is pretty cute. Um, and I've also learned that the actor, who I don't have her name handy, but she escaped the Church of Scientology, so I want to give her props, and I don't want to be too hard on her because, you know, good for her, because that sucks. Scientology is awful. Yeah. Uh, last thing we'll do is wrap up with Celebrimbor, Elrond, and the Dwarves. Um, Celebrimbor's forge is being built, which we see, um, and he's talking with Elrond. They have a little discussion of Arendil, his father, um, because apparently Arendil told Celebrimbor that Elrond would help him one day, and I assume this is what that means. Um, dramatic irony would make me think that maybe there's something else that will come up later, which is really what Arendil meant. Who knows? Whatever. No one really cares. <laughs> uh, but Celebrimbor, you know, Durin's been ducking him, has not talked to him, has not showed up to be participating in the building of his forge. So Elrond goes back to Moria, and we see him talking to Disa. Um, talking about where is Doran? Why is Doran not here? When Doran's not on screen, everyone should be asking, where is Doran? <laughs> and that's basically what this is. We hear Disa's kids like singing a song in the, what's it called, in their bedroom. And I noticed the, the kids are named Gerda and Gamli, which honestly, like this show overall really needs to try a lot harder. I don't know if those are their original names, like for the show, or they are from, you know, Tolkien's family trees. Nope. But it feels like every name in the show that's made up uh, is just like the laziest possible uh -huh. like Middle Earth name, which mostly just stands out because Emily has been naming all our patrons in the Discord and putting a lot of time and thought into those names. And they are beautiful and great. Thank you. And these names are just like, why don't we just combine the first name of someone and switch a letter or let's like portmanteau these other two names we know. Yep. Uh, nothing really feels like super original in the naming. I don't know if they're trying to like dumb it down so they're like very easy to pronounce names and they remind us of names from the original thing but i would prefer more more of that tolkien naming and more of the flowery naming than we're getting here yep um I, the other thing that kind of cracked me up is they've got their little town in um in the southlands is called austereth um which just means city of guard which is also just ministereth ministereth is tower of guard and this is city of guard and i'm like okay like i guess they're both technically like descriptive names but come on like give me give me something more than this why are we using like a cindera name here when like the aaron deer uh, whatever i don't care i don't care i don't care it's just lazy i agree with you um boring now is there any chance that this us what's it called austerith 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 is there any chance this is minas tirith before it becomes minas tirith because no. This is the watchtower near Mortar? No? No. Min Minas Tirith is like um, about, oh God, I can't do the guessing on the, the. I think it's about 300 miles, almost probably due west of here. Um, so we are like in Mortar proper in this. 
Okay. This could theoretically be some other tower we know, whether it's Minas Morgul or something like that, though. Baradur. Baradur is another obvious one. Um, Darthong, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, nice. Um, but okay, so we have we have we have some options. I just didn't know how close it was, but yeah, three three thousand miles or leagues or whatever you said that would three hundred rather uh, would be too far for the amount of like villagers that had to flee in refuge to this place yeah. uh, to cover. So that makes sense. Um, anyways, returning back to uh, Elrond, he I think he basically spies on Disa and figures out that they're mining under the mirror mirror. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's one of those Elrond, what do your elf ears hear kind of <laughs> things where he can just hear that far. Or, uh, but basically he uh, snooped and he was able to go uh, find Durin under the mirror mirror or the mines that they had set up under there. Um, and Durin and Elrond have a little chat um, and they just kind of talk about stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I honestly barely remember what they were talking about, but it's basically like, why were you ducking um, Celebrimbor? Like, what have you found? And it's just this big reveal that they were mining Mithril. They found Mithril, this new amazing ore, which, again, everyone who kind of knows a thing about Lord of the Rings would be like, this was obvious from the very first episode, or I guess episode two when we met them. Yeah. Um, so it's like one of those things where it's like, this is not how you use dramatic irony in a prequel. No. Uh, you're, you're hiding the answers we already know. You're yep. supposed to either twist those or give us some new information that makes us view those things in a new light. Um, none of that's happening here. Yeah. It's just basically, you know what's coming, so we're just going to kind of play with your expectations and that's it. Yeah. I also just think it makes, like, Elrond look like such a, like, a little kind of sniveling jackass. Because, like, he's been friends with this guy um, for, like, with Durin for 20, more than 20 years, solidly more than 20 years. And... Calibrimber, who he's known for like all of, I think, a couple of weeks at this point is like, oh, seems like he's behaving like a bit of a shithead. I want you to go spy on him. And Elrond, with no resistance whatsoever and apparently no moral qualms about it, is like, yeah, I'll go spy on him. I don't trust my friend of 40 or 20 or 40 years. Like, come on, man, have a spine. Yeah, which is funny because basically the end of this whole plot thread is uh, Durin talking to his father, Durin the fourth. Um, and Doran the fourth basically tells Doran the fifth, why don't you go spy on the elves instead? Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's basically a r- role reversal. But um, before that, I do want to point out that we do get a sequence where Disa is singing to the rocks, uh, which was actually the singing started back when Aaron Deer and Bronwyn like kind of reunited outside of the forest and the orcs stopped giving chase. Um, but that kind of that segued into us seeing Disa sing. And basically, she's singing to the rocks because the mine had collapsed under the mirror mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is a way to, like, make the rocks not <laughs> trap them in. Yeah. Um, like, I get it. It's tolkien enough. I wish they hadn't explained it because it's a great bit. I just wish they hadn't felt the need to explain very slowly to us what they're doing. Like, sometimes things that are spiritual or community oriented can just be things without explore- like explanation. <laughs> like, just have her sing beautifully. Have that be a lovely moment. And don't tell me about the, like details of it yeah and if it was a uh, sophia nambetti actually singing it was beautiful yeah, whatever it was shit. i thought musically this was great yeah oh and those um this cracked me up as well because the because they they just redeemed themselves here because the the singing was beautiful but the shots that lead in the singing are shot for shot redo of um remakes of uh peter jackson's doing the new zealand mountains that they use for both uh the opening of the two towers and then the uh lighting the beacons of gondor and i was sitting there going i know exactly what this is this sucks and then they cut to her singing and i was like okay well it's a bit redeemed because that's an awesome little bit they've done there 
Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to stop now before we go into our spoiler section. We're going to read off our patron names uh, first. I do want to point out that anyone who's using a podcast player that I guess isn't Apple Podcasts should have the option to look at the chapters. We do break down all our episodes into various chapters, into various bits. So if you are someone who's generally interested in just hearing your name called out on the podcast, but not what we have to say about these episodes, um, you can basically skip to the spoiler section and then rewind a minute or two, um, and then you can hear your name called out. So if this is where you're getting off today, thanks for joining us. Uh, please support us at patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you will get early access to episodes, bonus contact, and your very own Middle Earth name, which we, will, which we will read on air, such as... Thank you to Johnny Flores Jr., a.k.a. Lothaman of Palinka. We like to thank Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, the guardian of Kirith Ungol. Haley Glyphs, a.k.a. Ayavendil. Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Aranwo Minyatar. Maddie Hugh, also known as Ethedor of Kolkarthad. And those were our $10 patrons who get shouted out every episode. Um, this week, we want to shout out two $5 patrons. Uh, first is going to be Zoe, who goes by Farrowin. <laughs> nice. Uh, and Lenny Not Dead, uh, who is Rosorno of Aranor. And I promise you, we, I will get better at reading these names in the future. Uh, <laughs> I am very bad at this. Oh, I bollocked up like two of those as well. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And also, uh, you can send us emails about the Rings of Power at my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and follow us at my bro, my cat, my pod on Insta and Twitter. For everyone else, let's get to our spoiler section. All right, now that we're in our full spoiler section, uh, let's first talk about Adar. Um, Emily, I think you have some more ideas on who this might be. Oh boy, do I ever. Yeah, so I think this confirms, I think between this and the sword, um, this confirms my deepest, darkest fear, my worry, the thing that I was really hoping. I was so convinced that this couldn't possibly be true that I really didn't even want to say it on air, and now I'm convinced that it is true, and my soul is broken, so I'm going to say it. Um, I think that Adar is either going to be Aeol, the Dark Elf, or Meglin, his son. Um, there are, we'll get into this later. We'll get into this later once I can do my research and not say things that are just utterly unhinged without evidence. Um, but a lot of the kind of patterns that they're setting both from the sword, um, and from, uh, who, who Aeol and who Maeglin are and what they can kind of be used for. Um, and also the reference to Beleriand and the relationship to Beleriand and kind of pointedly picking up that relationship to Beleriand um, makes me think that that Aeol, who who is known as the Dark Elf, who um, whose realm was in Beleriand, um, and Maeglin, his son, who was uh, his son via um, Arethel, um, uh, the, the White Lady of the Noldor, um, these are two characters in the Silmarillion who are like incredibly complex and interesting characters, as most of the characters in the Silmarillion are, but but who do have that sort of like dark edge to them, like quite literally, because one of them is called the Dark Elf, but then the other one, Maeglin, is uh, he's got we'll call it a politically contentious relationship to the fall of Gondolin. Um, and I think I think I'm almost entirely convinced that they are either going to directly make Adar either um, Aeol or or Maeglin, or they're going to template. Uh, this character very specifically on one of the two of them. So I'm bracing for impact there. 
Okay, very good. We might have more on that in a future episode, but you did mention Balerion, much like this episode did, at least once. Um, Balerion <laughs> was a city on the western coast of Middle-earth that was sunk at the end of the First Age. Is there any relationship between Beleriand and what's going to come with Numenor being sunk into the sea as well? Yeah, so so the, so um, yes, no, not really. Um so Beleriand is interesting because it's kind of like all of basically from like um Linden, uh, the Grey Havens, Ered Luin, um kind of to the west. There was about like 4 or 500 miles of land in both directions. Um that was that formed the western part of Middle Earth. Um and that that's called Beleriand and that's where the Noldor first um park up when when they come back from Valinor. Um and it is sunk um under the waves. Um but this is mostly just kind of like the like fuckery of uh these massive battles, first aid battles between Morgoth and the elves and the Valar. Um it is not sunk as a punishment. Like like the sink, the sinking of Numenor, um, Numenor is sunk because God directly intervenes to say "fuck this shit, we're done," um, and uh, ter- makes the earth round. Uh, so until uh, Numenor is sunk, uh, the earth uh, Artha is flat, uh, and then uh, Eru Luvatar sends the great wave, uh, sinks Numenor, uh, and makes the earth round, and literally physically separates uh, Valinor from the earth, making it kind of I think heaven slash the moon, which is a good bit. And <laughs> um, Beleriand is sunk for wildly more prosaic reasons. Now, not entirely prosaic reasons, because it is a battle between like these demigods and these elves that does sink an entire half of a continent, but it's not done for like a specific pu- purpose. It's mostly just a whoopsie. We accidentally destroyed our continent. Yeah, I guess two cities uh, being sunk into the sea isn't a trend, but it is weird that it happened twice. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's basically <laughs> that's basically all I'm going for. That I kind of knew the answer to that, but I wanted you to at least explain it because. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that was laid out for our listeners. Um, I already asked you about Tar Palantir and any connection to the Palantir. But one thing that kind of threw me was that uh, Tar Muriel hinted that the other six seeing stones were lost, mm. which I thought at this point they would all be accounted for. Mm-hmm. Um do we know where the others are, or do you have any idea what they might possibly be going for here? So no, the in canon, the the Palantiri are not technically lost at this point. And she does, and because I know they're doing like canonical kind of litigation with this, um, she says lost or hidden. Um, and I think what they're going to do is rely on the hidden part of this. And they're going to say that the other six Palantiri are hidden. And I suspect this is just going to be like Elendil's fetch quest where, so Elendil, Isildur, and Anarion, when they flee, uh, when they lead the Exodus, the pilgrimage from Numenor to Middle-earth, um, they take the seven Palantiri with them. Um, and that is a mark of their sort of right to rule uh, because they're able to wield the Palantir. Uh, and that is their kind of like de- the confirmation of their divine right. Um, so we know that when Elendil, Isildur, and Anarion set off from from Numenor, they have the seven seeing stones, the seven Palantiri in, in their keeping. Um, I suspect they just need something for Elendil to do. So they're going to go make him wander around Numenor trying to find the six other Palantir that they don't have. Um, it's not technically not canon, but it's also not canon either. And like I think the kind of thing that grates a bit for me is like the Palantiri are a sign of the completeness of 
the kingdom, like it is used as a sign of Gondor and and Arnor's decay that the Seeing Stones are lost. And as um, throughout the history of Gondor and and certainly out throughout the history of Arnor, as the the Palantiri like effectively drop off the map, whether lost in in Anduin or uh, lost while fighting over like on Weathertop, um, it is a sign that things are going terribly horribly wrong with these kingdoms, and and it is a sign that they are losing something that they will never get back. Um, Numenor doesn't technically have to have them, but it ought to have them as a sign of the completeness of its kingdom. This is a kingdom at the height of its power. Um, if it doesn't have its kind of central um, surveillance infrastructure, it is not at the top of its kingdom. And like, yes, you can argue that maybe it's a better story to tell that like this is not a kingdom that's as whole and purposeful and like good as it seems, but that's also not what the story is. And that's and like Numenor has to be handled correctly so that the rest of the Lord of the Rings has the poignancy that it does. And I'm not saying like this show sucking ass is going to like impact the Peter Jackson films in any ways. But like you have to have a conscientiousness of like the future and the past and when you're telling Tolkien stories or adapting them. Um, and so like they are not technically gone, but they symbolically ought to be gone. Um, but I suppose they could technically also be hidden. <laughs> Okay, as soon as you said fetch quest and six stones to find, I immediately jumped to The Legend of Zelda. Yeah. It's like A Link to the Past or Ocarina of Time, where adult Link or Dark World Link has to go to the six dungeons and recover the sages or whatever. Um, it's a very common thing for the second half of a Zelda game, uh, Breath of the Wild excluded. But okay, sure. Um, I wish they just made a fucking Legend of Zelda show anyways. God, yes, please. Uh, and we'll wrap up with our Secret Sauron watch, which first it was kind of light on the Secret Saurons this week, but we want to expand the um, scope of our watch to also include like the Nazgul and Witch King, um, because one of our very heavily favored Secret Saurons has been Halbrand. But I think the possibility of him being one of like the nine kings of men mm -hmm. who become the Nazgul in Peter Jackson's universe is probably more likely. Yeah. Um, so um, glossing over the people we've talked about before, namely Adar, Halbrand, and the Stranger, my one pick for this episode was Waldrig. Mm. <laughs> um, he's the old guy who at the end of this episode is talking to Theo and basically says, oh, you have my sword, boy. And have you ever heard his name? Have you heard of Sauron? Oh, I love him, by the way. <laughs> um, he didn't really say that, but it very much hinted that his ancestor served Sauron and that Waldrig very much seemed to be that guy. It's way too obvious for him to be Sauron, but I would like the idea that Sauron's just some old loser loser dude who has a barn. Yeah, that would rock. Like, cottagecore Sauron. <laughs> <laughs> and I've gone for the totally anti-cottagecore Sauron approach, which is uh, Celebrimber. Um, I think since they've taken a look at the book canon and been like, fuck this shit, um, I think they... I hope and pray that they will go totally balls to the walls. And rather than having Celebrimber be uh, effectively seduced um, or not effectively actually seduced, depending on what you are reading, uh, by Sauron and, and kind of falling under a spell by virtue being too trusting, I think it would be a fun little twist if Celebrimber um, was actually just Sauron and actual Celebrimber was dead and dying somewhere. Like the Mad-Eye Moody plot in, um, Harry, not Game of Thrones, in Harry Potter <laughs> 4. Um, and this is actually Sauron using his ability to shapeshift, uh, dressing himself up in uh, Celebrimber clothes. Um, and this is why Celebrimber is acting so shady and a character whose fatal flaw is being too trusting is actually being uh, too judgmental and weird about the dwarves. Um, so yes, Celebrimber, Sauron, Lego. 
I, I, I honestly actually really, really love that idea. I think I'm going to endorse it, even though it throws into question the Tolkien canon that matters to me, that is the Shadows of Mordor games, <laughs> um, because Celebrimbor is very much not Sauron on that. I, I'll let them play with that canonicity, <laughs> though. I think that's a great idea. That closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycapmypod, where you'll get access to special bonus content, early access to episodes, and become a member of our Discord community, where Emily might give you a special name in Cinderin or Quenya or other languages that I can't recall right now. <laughs> Anyways, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers, and a Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, which is where I will be sticking a massive curly straw into the sundering seas and chugging up all of the water so that it doesn't turn into a great wave. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, or as we prefer to call him now, Ethreglier Andretheon, or rather DJ Empirical on Twitter. How did I do with that name? Was that good enough? Nailed it. Nailed it. Hell yeah. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, which is where I will be sticking a massive curly straw into the sundering seas and chugging up all of the water so that it doesn't turn into a great wave. I'm waiting one second because a fire truck is going by my building. Okay.